0: Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, June 3rd, 2022. Drew, I want to point out, again, your your other wonderful podcast, Light the Fuse, a.k.a. Light the Fuselage. We've been keeping people abreast of what's been going on with Top Gun Maverick you told the world that they had to go see this on an IMAX screen, you know, the yes. biggest possible screen. And I saw IMAX actually tweet this out earlier this week that we only have till Thursday, June 9th during the day.
1: Yeah, I think the Jurassic World screenings start that night. So Okay. I've seen it I've seen it in Dolby IMAX and ScreenX, which they actually project things on the side of the interior of the theater. Um, which is pretty amazing. But so the only thing I haven't done is 40X, which if you want, mm-hmm. you know, your she- seats to shake and them to shoot water at you, that's the that's the <laughs> last one on my bingo card. But I think I'd be okay if I I missed that one.
0: Duly noted uh, the, 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 if you wanna see twenty six percent more screen yep. and see Top Gun Maverick, which by the way, just became Tom Cruise's most successful domestically released film. But again, you have till Thursday, June 9th during the day. Because as Drew mentioned, starting that night, we start getting the Thursday night preview screenings for Jurassic World Dominion. Anyway, I know, not exactly animation news, which there was a lot of this week. And speaking of the news, the news portion of this week's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Mentioned at the top of the show that Drew and I are recording this particular episode of Fine Tuning on Friday, June 3rd, which, if you're a Phineas and Ferb fan, you might recognize that June 3rd is, is the very first date on that calendar, you see it in the title sequence where they're doing the, there's 104 days of summer vacation. And, of course, uh, Finney Sinfert was created by Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh. By the way, if you're looking for something to do with your summer vacation in 2022, you might want to check out Dan Povenmire's new animated series for the Disney Channel, which was... Hamster and Gretel. Yes.
1: Did you see that clip they put out? I did. What did you think of that? I thought it was fine. I'm not totally in love with their art style, so I was a little disappointed. But it seems like a cute idea. It's obviously the greatest title of any animated show since Pickle and Peanut, I think. So, you know, it's got that going for it.
0: You're not wrong. And, yeah, I mean, you know, the weird thing of it is it's very much in the Phineas and Ferb Milo Murphy's Law Wheelhouse. I mean, the premise of the show is 16-year-old Kevin, who's just gotten his driver's license, is transporting his younger sister Gretel to soccer practice when their minivan breaks down and and is then intercepted by space aliens. The space aliens decide to gift these two with superpowers, but then something goes awry, and it's not Kevin and Gretel who end up with the superpowers, but rather Gretel and her pet hamster, who's called Hamster, who end up having super strength and being able to fly. And Povenmire has based the show on his relationship with his own sister, who is 10 years younger than Dan. Also worth noting, this appears to be a solo project for Povenmire. Uh, Swampy isn't associated with the show, which was evidently greenlit back in October of 2020. We don't have an official uh, debut date yet, just summer 2022. It's also been reported that when Hamster and Gretel debut later this year, it may be paired with Marvel Animation's next series for the Disney Channel, which is Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Interesting. And speaking of first looks, earlier this week we got to see the teaser trailer for Robert Zemeckis' live-action animated reimagining of Disney's
1: hand-drawn classic from 1940, Pinocchio. Our thoughts, Mister Taylor. You know, I'm still hoping for the best, Jim. I am hoping for the best, but that was not a that was not what I would call a good foot forward. If you go online, yes, the Disney fan community
0: did seem divided. I mean, I, again, everyone seemed okay with Tom Hanks's look for Geppetto. On the other hand, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt CG version of Jimmy Cricket got mixed reviews. Though the the look there really is like early. Ward Kimball yeah. takes on, you know, I mean, back, you know, there was that weird moment when they were developing the original Pinocchio where Jiminy looked like an actual cricket and and Walt was like, nope, nope. And finally Ward is like, well, what about this? A little bald guy. It's like, perfect. That's the one. So you feel like Zemeckis went back through that stuff. And yeah, let's go with that one. But Cynthia Ervo's take on the Blue Fairy really brought out the trolls. This was an especially frustrating week for this sort of thing, because, of course, Moses Ingram, for her performance as the third sister, Inquisitor Arriva in Obi-Wan Kenobi, also brought out the folks who, oh my god, I don't care for that
1: person. And they'll walk right up to being racist without actually being racist. I mean, Cynthia Riva is such an amazing talent. I was just very mm-hmm. confused as to why she was a performance capture character and not just—they didn't just allow her to just be in the scene. I thought that was sort of weird. Did you think that was odd, Jim?
0: This is Robert Zemeckis. This is Mr. Beowulf, and <laughs> you know, and and Christmas Carol, and. Every so often, I feel like with Zemeckis, it's, like, oh, performance captured. It's like somebody should go shoot over and slap that out of his hands. Right. It's like, no, no, no. Didn't work the last time. Not going to work this time. Just given how vehement folks seem to be about this, it's just sort of like, it's a trailer. Cynthia is in the trailer for two seconds. I actually went back, and and it's a only a minute and 42 second long trailer. And her performance capture version of the Blue Fairy, only in it for two seconds. So here's an interesting idea. Maybe wait to pass judgment on Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio till
1: after you actually see it. I mean, I know that's a kooky, crazy idea. Listen, as as one of the ten people who liked the witches, I'm I'm ready to enjoy Pinocchio. But the trailer was just a little a little rough.
0: Yeah, yeah. What I found more intriguing was. They're going to use this to help get people excited about Disney Plus Day? I guess it's being released on September 8th, which the company is now trying to position going forward as Disney Plus Day. Well, what's
1: funny is that Disney Plus Day this year is a completely different day than it was last year. So them trying to make Disney Plus Day a thing is just hilarious to me.
0: Just waiting for Hallmark to get those happy Disney Plus Day cards out there. So we're going (laughs) to... You know, I can start sending those off to friends and family. But more interesting to me is Disney Plus Day is coming the day before the D23 Expo. Anaheim Convention Center, September 9th through September 11th. So very same facility that Star Wars Celebration was just held at, which is why I'm kind of hoping, given that they allowed the people there to watch the first two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi on the big screen in the Anaheim Arena, Kind of hoping they may do the same thing with Pinocchio. Allow event attendees to watch that on the big screen and in the Anaheim marinas at some point across the event. Speaking of trailers for films that will be shown at subscription streaming services, earlier today, we got a trailer for Beavis and Butthead do the universe. You caught this one, Drew? Oh, yeah.
1: I thought it was great. Now that's a trailer, Jim. That is a trailer. <laughs>
0: This year marks the 30th anniversary of Beavis and Butthead cinematic debut. The Mike Judge short Frog Baseball began screening in theaters as part of the 1992 edition of Spike and Mike's Sick and Twisted Animation Festival. That's where MTV executives first saw Beavis and Butthead and offered Judge the opportunity to develop an animated series. The show itself debuts in March of '93, runs seven seasons, Not to mention spawning an earlier full-length animated feature, Beavis and Butthead Do America, which came out Christmas week, 1996, and was the number one film in the country that week.
1: Time flies, Jim. (laughs) More to the point, you know,
0: it's like, I could stay inside this house and spend time with my family, or I could go watch Beavis and Butthead. And it's like, you get the car keys. For some folks, Beavis and Butthead may not be your cup of tea, but... Don't make the mistake of underestimating these Mike Judd characters. I think there's a huge audience out there that grew up watching these guys and are actually eager to see this thing come back on, on Paramount+. And as long as we're talking about animated series that got their start on MTV, I guess we can talk about a little music-related animation news. And, and Drew, given your love of vinyl, and, and you've actually written the liner notes for a number of soundtracks for animated features now. Yes. So... What did you think about the news about the new 2LP vinyl soundtrack for Iron Giant? I didn't
1: even hear about this. Who Who is putting it out? It's Vares Sarabandi.
0: Okay. Am I getting okay. that name right? And it's the Michael Kamen score. Vares Sarabandi put out the original soundtrack back in July of 99. That was only 49 minutes worth of material. This two vinyl set is 64 minutes worth of the Iron Giant score, plus 13 minutes of alternate tracks, outtakes, and rare demos. We're just now finding out that they wanted to have a hit single in the soundtrack, so there's a demo for a song called Souls Don't Die. It's a guitar and piano piece that's performed by Michael Kamen. And Eric Clapton, have have you ever heard anything about this? No, I haven't. I
1: mean, I I obviously love Cayman and Clapton's work on the Mm -hmm. uh, Lethal Weapon scores. Mm -hmm. So that is very intriguing to me. But I had never heard that they were trying to get a radio hit out of uh, anything from the Iron Giant. Especially given how indifferent everyone was towards it as it was opening.
0: I'm one of those people who actually physically went to the theater in late July of 99 to watch this thing. and it was there on the Friday night it opened, Nancy and t- literally two other people at a theater. So who knows? Maybe it had single There would have been eight <laughs> of us. Wow. Right, exactly. Anyway, this two LP vinyl set is supposed to go on sale August 5th. If you go to the Sarabandi website— they're showing that this 2LP vinyl release is already in stock and ready for purchase with a suggested retail of 50 bucks. On the other hand, if 50 bucks is kind of outside of your price range right now, how does Free sound? Did you see the sample track that was put out just yesterday for the Lightyear soundtrack?
1: Yes. I don't know anything about the Lightyear soundtrack, Jim, so please tell me. What was revealed? It's the Micah Giocano. Giacchino? Giacchino, yeah.
0: Yes, what they put out is the Mission Perpetual track from the, the soundtrack for this Angus McLean film. By the way, there's been a number of folks who when are talking about Lightyear out ahead of the film being released on June 17th. And they're talking about what they want to see as either an end credit scene or a mid credit scene is to cut to the exterior of the theater And to have Andy, the little boy from the first three Toy Story films, coming out and just, oh, that was a great movie, and telling his mom he now wants the Buzz Lightyear action figure, and her going, well, maybe for your birthday. And Angus literally got online and said, no, there's no scene like that in the movie because you're supposed to be Andy. Right. As you, you walk out, you're supposed to want to get the Buzz Lightyear action figure.
1: Also, the movie is supposed to have been made in the 70s or 80s. So I think Andy probably saw it on VHS is my guess as well so <laughs> maybe on t- maybe on cable
0: all right yeah no no oh no you see now i would buy that yeah just to have that to put that in that wall of useless vhs's i have here <laughs> at the house that have no device to play them on yeah. also as long as we're sharing pixar related news this is either happy or sad depending on what
1: animation studio you work at
0: did you see this announcement coming from locksmith studios
1: yeah i did i actually wrote it up Uh, whenever that was, on Tuesday, I want to say.
0: Okay, so can you you tell us a a little bit about Mary Coleman, who's now headed to Locksmith from Pixar?
1: Yeah, I mean, Mary Coleman is kind of an unsung hero uh, of Pixar. She was the first development executive that came to the company in 1999, so right before the release of Toy Story 2, and she shepherded so many amazing projects. I mean, she worked on everything up until... I think turning red. So, I want to say started Monsters
0: Inc. and again, yeah. everything going forward at that point.
1: Yeah, I think she, she was the first female member of the Brain Trust. She, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, she is an amazing person, and and she was so responsible for the things that you love about every Pixar movie. So, the fact that she's leaving and going to Locksmith is a really big win for Locksmith, but a big hit for Pixar, right?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: but at the same time, the
0: only way you create opportunities for other members of the team to rise up to the challenge is when something like this happens. But even so, uh, Mary's a, a big get for Locksmith, and that's a tough hit for Pixar. But Locksmith Animation, uh, the folks who did Ron's Gone Wrong, and I think we we talked in either last show or the show before that, that they just recently announced their next full-length animated feature, will, which will be That Christmas. Okay, we started off this week's fine-tuning by talking about a new animated series from Disney-branded television that featured a powerful female character, Gretel of Hamster and Gretel, 20 years ago today, or at least the day that the show will become available for listening to. Another powerful female character debuted in an animated series at the Disney Channel, and that was Kim Possible, and in a moment, Drew and I will look back at the history of that show. Couple of quick notes before we get to Kim Possible. Last night, Disney Animation Studio had a, a celebration of the Burbank launch. Evidently, they have completed production of Baymax with an exclamation point and Zootopia Plus with a plus sign. Both of which are going to be showing on Disney Plus later this year. Also, brand new episodes of The Ghost and Molly McGee will begin airing on the Disney Channel this coming Saturday, June 11th. Now, before we launch into the history of Kim Possible. Did you see what John DiMaggio, who of course voiced Dr. Draken and Kim Possible, I think we talked about him very publicly saying that he would not return to voice Bender for the 20 new episodes of Futurama that Disney was going to produce for Hulu?
1: We could never forget Bendergate, Jim. I mean, that is just, that is, (laughs) that is... You know, informed the rest of our year, practically, of course. We all remember that. Okay.
0: But the interesting thing is John, just this past weekend, was at Phoenix Fan Fusion. And he got talking about what went on. And first of all, he revealed what the plan was if he hadn't come back to Voice Bender. And the notion was for each of the 20 episodes, they were going to hire a different name actor to come in and voice Bender. So evidently the conceit was that, okay, we've almost fixed Bender's voice box and they turn it on. It would be somebody different doing Bender's voice. But anyway, in early March, it was announced that John would be returning to the show. And so the assumption was that DiMaggio had had held out and he'd gotten concessions from Disney and Hulu and that they'd caved and they were offering him more money to, to voice this beer-swilling robot, which is not true.
1: Did you see what John had to say at Phoenix Fan Fusion about this? Yes, he said, people are like, I'm so glad you got more money. I didn't get m- more money, but what I did get was a lot of respect and a lot of head nods from people who were like, yo, bro, I see you and thank you. So I'm not really sure what that means, and I'm not sure if you can buy bread with head nods, but I appreciate that.
0: And and uh, Dimashow evidently went on to say, he wasn't just trying to get more money for himself. He was trying to get more money for uh, the fight. I mean, he's been working on the show with Billy West and, and Katie Seagal and all of these folks for 23 years at this point. And so the notion was, let me see we I can
1: do better by us. But do you want to share the the rest of what John said from the stage? Sure. He said, but listen, this was the best thing about that fight. I had Disney, Hulu. I was holding on to their collective testicles. So hard that they couldn't, you know, there was nowhere for them to go. But there was also nowhere to go for me. And who wants to hold on to those for that long? A lot of turning your head and
0: coffee. Yes, folks. yes. <laughs> really appreciate that Mr. DiMaggio tried. Also looking forward to these new episodes of Future Animal, which, by the way, Sci-Fi Wire said will begin airing on Hulu sometime this summer. That can't be right, right? No way. Maybe next summer. All right, now to Kim Possible. So, do you remember watching
1: the show in your
0: misspent youth? I group, actually or? don't
1: think I watched it ever. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Kim Possible. This is me outing myself, Jim. Oh my god, really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Because September tw- two thousand one, there was some other stuff going on, but there, it was also I was getting out of high school, so I I had left all that foolishness behind me, Jim. Little little did I know that it would come to define my life. So yeah, I wasn't really regularly watching Disney Channel at the time, so this kind of of passed me by. So I'm very interested to hear the history of the show, which I know so many people love so much.
0: You know, I did not flash on what you just pointed out. First of all, Kim Possible was the second animated series to be produced by the Disney Channel. The first was The Proud Family, and that debuted the previous year on September 15th. 2001, which, as I think you just pointed out, there were some other events that happened in that same window of time. So, wow, just four days after 9-11, they walked out a new animated series. Yeah. Anyway, as the story goes, both of these shows had strong female characters, which Disney Channel management was very interested in, given the huge success of Lizzie McGuire, which had debuted on that cable channel in January of 2001. And it was supposedly the Lizzie's Inner Thoughts animated character that made the folks, uh, the executives at the Disney Channel think, okay, maybe we should be doing some more animation here. People seem to really be responding to that. And hey, you know, Disney, animation, what a concept. I actually got to visit Bob and Mark in their offices in the old Disney feature animation building on the Burbank lot a, a few months before Kim debuted on, on the Disney Channel and They showed me Crush, uh, which was the first episode of the show, to air. And again, good, solid, funny show. They had decorated their office, evidently. Bob and Mark had gone to Disney California Adventure and bought the full set of... Do you remember those recreations of the rides from Paradise Pier that they built? They had a full set of them up on the highest shelves. In their office, and it was like, wow, the California screaming actually looks cool I like that. You know, <laughs> it's the, the full size one doesn't work. Anyway, there's quite the Venn diagram going on with Kim Possible. I mean, it's a teen sitcom that also parodies James Bond movies, which, by the way, is also set in a, a retro version of Middle America. And what I really like about Bob and Mark is they were deliberately subversive, like they made a conscious decision to make Ron Stoppable's pet a naked mole rat, figuring there was just no way that Disney's mighty consumer products division could ever t- make a plush doll of Rufus, the, again, the naked mole rat. And Of course, Disney Consumer Products proves McCorkle and Scully wrong. They not only produced a Rufus plush, but the naked mole rat product. That went on to become the big, one of the Disney store's top-selling items for the calendar year of 2003-2004, and again, just, just a lot of really pink plush with a big overpid. Also worth noting that Kim Possible was created largely because after spending years of working at Disney television animation, grinding out spin-off series like Aladdin and Hercules and Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, Mark and, and Robert were tired of being cogs in the Disney corporate machine. They wanted to work on something original. So they heard from the higher ups at the company that Disney was interested in developing an animated series that would entertain kids 9 to 14 years old, as well as their parents. But again, word came down due to the success of Lizzie McGuire, they wanted the show to have a female protagonist. So one day McCorkle and Scully, they, they go over to the, the Disney commissary on the lot. They get their lunch. They're walking back. They get in the elevator to go back up to their office in the feature animation building. And Robert has the brainstorm, and he turns to Mark and says, "Kim Possible, she can do anything." Emma Corkle looks at him and then responds with, "Ron Stoppable, he can't do anything." And that was the pitch for the show. And so, so they take it to Disney. Disney likes the idea, but they want to keep this show as in-house as possible. So, for the voice of the title character. It's strongly suggested to Scaldi McCorkle that, you know, they consider Christy Carlson Romano, who's just finishing up her run as Wren Stevens on the Disney Channel hit Even Stevens. Also, the studio likes Will Friedle, who had appeared on ABC's long-running sitcom Boy Meets World, which was produced by Disney's Touchstone Television division. Uh, it had just completed a seven-year run and Will's Between Gigs. So, luckily, Christie and Will are perfect choices for, to voice uh, Kim and Ron. McCorkle and Scully are quick to credit the chemistry that these two have behind the mic is one of the reasons that Kim Possible became the hit that it was. But because they went with the studio execs Suggestions about the two leads for Kim Possible, Scully McCorkle then felt free to pursue bigger names for this animated series. Other characters, so they, for example, they went after Nancy Cartwright, who voices Bart on The Simpsons, is the voice of Rufus. We've talked about John DiMaggio, a Bender from Futurama, is the voice of D- Draken, <laughs> and the other one, Ricardo Montalban, Khan from Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. And, you know, of course, Mr. Rourke from Fantasy Island, uh, he came in as the voice of Senior Senior. And Bob and Mark were huge, huge, huge Star Trek fans. Ricardo Montalban, I think, was the thing that made them the giddiest, that they think, oh, my God, we get to be in the same room with Khan. Also, Bob and Mark made room for friends on the show, people that they'd previously worked with, and this included... Nicole Sullivan, uh, the mad TV vet who had voiced Princess Mira on the previous show that Scully and McCorkle had made for Disney television animation, Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. And by the way, Sullivan had such great chemistry with John DiMaggio, him playing Dr. Draken and she playing Shigo, that this was never the plan, but those two became basically the primary villains of the show. Four seasons were produced, 87 episodes, with the last episode airing September of 2007. Kim Possible becomes the very first series on that cable channel to get adapted to a Disney Channel original movie. Uh, That's how we got Kim Possible A Sitch in Time. That premieres November 28, 2003. That movie is so popular, so hugely successful. The executives order a follow-up. The Kim Possible movie, So the Drama, which was originally supposed to serve as the show's finale. Uh, it aired April 8th of 2005, and again, was it always envisioned as the tag for the third and final season of the show. But then a weird thing happens, Drew. Kim Possible is such a huge hit, especially on the international versions of the Disney Channel, that executives at that cable channel uncancel this animated series. They, a fourth season of Kim Possible is announced in December of 2005 and then begins airing on that cable channel in February of 2007 with the, the final episodes of season four, Graduation, is two-parter, airing September 7th of that same year. Now, I have to assume you didn't watch the show, Drew, but did you ever do the Kim Possible World Showcase adventure when you were visiting Walt Disney World? I mean, I
1: remember when it was going on. And, you know, we're still waiting for that DuckTales uh, overlay.
0: This Epcot attraction doesn't begin running till January of 2009. I mean, it's 15, 16 months after the show goes off the air. People enjoy it. But at the same time, Kim's kind of in the rearview mirror at this point. So it it runs till May of 2012. and, And then that's when the Phineas and Ferb version runs and... That shut down to make way for a DuckTales version, which was announced and and yet has yet to go live. By the way, there was also the live-action Kim Possible movie, which Christy Carlson Romano came back to play Kim's mom in on that, and Patton Oswalt, who had voiced Professor Dementor on the animated series, actually came back to physically play the very same character in the flesh in the Kim Possible movie, which was kind of cool but that was in in 2019. Given that the Disney Channel's first animated series, The Proud Family, was recently revived as a Disney Plus show, The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder, there are a lot of Kim Possible fans out there who are wondering when the Disney Channel's second animated series is going to be revived. And it's not impossible to, to talk about this because... Bob and Mark, until recently, w- were still working for the mouse. Their most recent project for Disney Television Animation was kind of a throwback to their days of working on those Aladdin, Hercules, and Buzz Lightyear Star Command spin-off series. These were the guys who did uh, Big Hero 6, the series, which just ended its three-season run on the
1: Disney Channel back in February of last year. So They didn't work on Monsters at Work? Was that? Let, let's check that. No, you're right. That was Bob's. Was, there we yes. go. I was about to say yes.
0: the Bobs. Anyway, again, these guys in theory are, are available to work on a Kim Possible revival. So, what is it? Call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Which again, <laughs> probably the same thing Ethan Hunt would say in the Mission Impossible movies. If you want to get a hold of him, which brings us to talking about Drew's other podcast, which is Light like Diffused. And last time we talked, you guys were just getting into. A pile of Like the fuselage
1: shows. So what do we got coming up now? This week, we are starting our three-part chat with Eddie Hamilton, who is the editor of uh, Top Gun Maverick, as well as Mission Impossible Fallout and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and 2. So we have a cool. lot to talk to him about. Uh, if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, you know how miraculous the editing is. And, uh, yes, yeah, so we're just having a good time going, going to town on on Maverick. People love the movie. One day, Jim will watch it, um, maybe on a flight somewhere. He'll watch the, uh, the edited version for the plane um, on, you, a, on the It'll TV have to be a
0: really big scene. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of editing, I just got my copy of Making the Cut at Pixar, The Art of Editing Animation by Bill Kinder and Bobby Osteen. Really fascinating book. Some amazing behind the story scene stories about life at Pixar and how a lot of your favorite films came together. And as long as we're sneaking in gratuitous plugs here, on June 10th through the 12th, I am going to be at Dayton, Disney Anna. This is an event to benefit Pirate Packs, which is this terrific organization that helps the kids of the West Carlton School District who are dealing with food insecurity issues. It's going to be at the Hope Hotel and the Richard C. Holbrook Conference Center in Dayton, Ohio. And I'm going to be in emceeing and hosting a number of panels. Be giving a talk on the history of the Main Street Electrical Parade and interviewing Tom Nabby, who is the very first Tom Sawyer to work at Disney Parks. In fact, Walt Disney himself picked Tom for this gig. And Mr. Nabby and I are going to be talking about the various different Tom Sawyer islands that the Imagineers built around the globe. Uh, again, it's for a great cause. Dayton Disneyland will have a huge vendors' room that you can hunt for collectibles in. Should be a fun, fun time. So come on out to the Hope Hotel and the Richard C. Holbrook Conference Center, June 10th through the 12th. And other gratuitous plugs here. Remember, we've got an addition to Light the Views Lodge and Light the Views. we got a couple of podcasts here you could listen to as well. we got Disney Dish with Lynn Testo. We've got Marvelous Disney, which I do in Aaron Adams. Likewise, Looking at Louisville with Brian Gaughan. If you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, fine-tuning, that would be helpful. If you you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, and finally, again, I know I mention this on every show, but seriously, if you're not following Drew Taylor on social media, you're missing out on all sorts of cool stuff. I don't know if that's true, but... (laughs) Well, no, in fact, given as busy as you are these days, Drew, I'm just, I'm kind of startled that, you know, five and six times a day, you're chiming in on Twitter or thereabouts, and usually poking somebody. Well, yeah,
1: or, I mean, I'm I'm retweeting a lot, so it's not, it's not quite, you're not, you're giving me too much credit, Jim. If I had some original thoughts, it would be much more interesting. But yes, please, well, if you want to follow well, me, it's Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt, on Twitter and Instagram. And what about you, Jim? Where can people find you?
0: You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook, it's Jim Hill Media News. And, Okay, folks, that's going to do it for now, and we will be back next week with another episode of Fine Tuning.